Welcome to Daughters of Lorraine, a podcast from your friendly neighborhood Black feminists, exploring the legacies, present, and futures of Black theater. We are your hosts, Leticia Ridley and Jordan Ely. On this podcast, produced for HowlRound Theater Commons, a free and open platform for theater makers worldwide, we discuss Black theater history, conduct interviews with local and national Black theater artists, scholars, and practitioners, and discuss plays by Black playwrights that have our minds buzzing. On May 9, 2022, playwright James Imes won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama for his play, Fat Ham. Loosely based on William Shakespeare's Hamlet, the play follows a black, queer, Southern college student as he navigates being haunted, literally and figuratively, by his father's death at a family cookout. Fat Ham received its world premiere via a digital production with the Wilma Theater in Philadelphia, where Imes serves as co-artistic director. We had the distinct pleasure of seeing the New York premiere of Fat Ham in a co-production between the Public Theater and the National Black Theater this past May. In this episode, we discuss this wild and whimsical production and a conversation about the nuances of Black queer experience, the adaptation of Shakespearean drama, and the continued need for sharp, incisive, and insurgent comedies. Welcome back to Daughters of Lorraine, episode five. We are back on these mics to talk about another theater production that we've seen. We are talking about the recent winner, Pulitzer Prize winner, Fat Ham by James Imes. We had the distinct pleasure to see this production at the public theater. Going in pretty blind. Didn't really know what to expect. No, it was riffing off of Hamlet, but... You know, I will have to say I was pleasantly surprised with the production. I'm really looking forward to sort of diving deeper into what the play is doing, what the production did really well, and just have a sort of conversation about Black queerness. Um, the first time perhaps we've talked about it on the podcast. Yeah, I think this is the first time we've like dedicated an episode specifically to, to thinking about that in, in all its nuances and complexity, which is so strange <laughs> considering like our general being, but, um, but I'm excited to, to dive deep into this play. Um, yeah. Like Leticia said, you know, we'd already been planning to go to New York and see a couple of productions. Um, and once we, you know, heard the announcement of the Pulitzer Prize and then that it was going to have a pro its world premiere at the public, we were like, oh my goodness, this is like serendipity. We have to go see this play, um, which neither of us knew anything about. So it's always lovely to, I, I have had that experience in a while where I like saw something that I knew absolutely nothing about um so it was really really great to really experience this the way that most theater goers are experiencing theater which is just like knowing absolutely nothing about it and just like walking in and seeing whatever is thrown at us and what was thrown at us was a lot <laughs> in, in a really great way in a really great way <laughs> yes it was a lot um you know i think let's just kind of sort of jump 
straight into it. So the production we've seen, like I mentioned, was at the Public Theater, directed by Sakim Ali. Uh, James Iams has a long, long, long bio. Um, he's a playwright, director, educator, been produced by many, many pl- uh, places, theaters. I don't want to run down the list. Um, he is also a Morehouse college graduate and he received his mfa in acting from temple university in philly um he is an associate professor of theater at villanova university and a co-artistic director of the wilma theater uh also in philly he wears a lot of hats when does he have time Mm -hmm. to write all these plays because he is a very very prolific playwright and you know I actually have never encountered any of his work until Fat Ham. Yeah, um, I had never read or um, gotten a chance to see any productions of his work uh, prior to this, but I had heard of him. Um, His name has definitely been circulating around because he's such a prolific playwright, as you have noted. Um, He's had a couple of plays in the last year few years um have their like have some productions in dc so like plays like moon man walk um which was directed by my friend angeliza and um and kill move paradise which i believe was um at rep stage a couple of seasons ago um and so i've always like been so um like upset that I miss his productions that have been here in the DC area. Um, but I'm really, really glad that we got to see this one, which was an absolute delight. Not to spoiler alert. <laughs> oh yeah. Spoiler. We're going to be talking about details. So if you know, you want to read it or you're going to see, you want to see the production without getting uh, some sort of finer details of the show, then, you know, you might want to skip this episode. Um, but yeah, James Imes, Really, really impressed by Fat Ham and specifically the way that he tricks out Shakespeare, right? Without being it, like, I don't know if adaptation would be the right word to sort of describe this, 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 this particular uh, play. It's, it to me, it's like something else. Perhaps maybe more like a remix of, of Hamlet might be more appropriate than an adaptation of it. How do you, what, what do you think about sort of how we sort of categorize it as it relates to Shakespeare itself? You know, I was thinking signifying. I was thinking signifying. I would say that this is signifying off Shakespeare. Um, and for those of you who aren't familiar with that concept, it's a concept that was coined by Henry Louis Gates, but has existed within Black cultural production for from time. <laughs> um, but basically signifying is about the... I mean, about the sampling, about the remixing, about the, um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily derivative, but it's, um, it's taking something pre-existing and putting a twist onto it, um, and, and making this sort of doubled meaning of it as well. Um, I don't know if you have a better definition, Leticia, but, (laughs) but that's kind of how I see signifying. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. So I think that signifying would probably actually be appropriate, especially when we think about how sort of blackness is so entangled and intertwined into sort of understanding sort of the lifeblood of this family, uh, of this production, of this play. I think signifying is probably, yeah, the most appropriate term uh, to talk about how it relates to Shakespeare. And, you know, I even felt like, you know, 
I, I, I did know that it was riffing off Hamlet, uh, the playbill that, you know, it's being hand at, handed out at the public. It does, you know, uh, mention Shakespeare. So, like, if you read the program note before before you um, watch a show, which all the students listening, read the playbill. It will give you so much information. Um <laughs> It it tells us that it that it's riffing off of off of ha- off a of Hamlet, uh, but I feel like if you just went in, you know, raw, you didn't read anything, and you watched Fat Ham, you wouldn't necessarily know that it was riffing off uh, Hamlet at all, uh, because it is also so distinctly itself as it has like a distinct identity as a play that stand on its own without necessarily you know, being like, oh, that's where Shakespeare lands, or this is where Shakespeare shows up within the actual production of the show. Yeah, I mean, I think that we were both like, when we when we heard like, oh, it's, it's a, a riffing off of, or an adaptation, which we already said, not really an adaptation of Hamlet, we were like, okay, let's see, let's see. We, we've talked about Shakespeare and blackness on this podcast before, so check out that episode that we did in uh, our second season with Rania Brown. Um, but this was really not Shakespeare. Like, <laughs> I mean, like, it kind of was, and I feel like it was a the girls that get it, get it moment, but it was really, it was really something all in of its own i mean i think it used some of the kind of narrative conventions of hamlet like the father's death and the ghost um and the kind of feud with the uncle and the uncle marrying the mother but like other than that it was really it's really something all its own like i honestly if if they didn't even tell me it was hamlet like i would i would not have associated that like immediately in my mind the the play back and forth with like what does it mean for the public to do um, a riff off of Shakespeare when they're so known for their sort of iconic you know Shakespeare in the Park production and specifically the last few years we've really seen this uh, leaning into uh, making Shakespeare black or Shakespeare in black right mm-hmm. so like you know you have you know the Stacey Abrams imprint <laughs> on the last one what, what what show was that which one did, was it as as you like it what was it which one did they do? Oh man, it was with Danielle Brooks, directed by Kenny Leon. Yes, we I talked can't about it on this podcast. We're terrible. We can't even remember. Oh, 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 um, oh wow, I cannot remember. Was it was it Twelfth Night? <laughs> no, it was not Twelfth Night. Okay, well, you know, y'all listen to that episode if you want to know what we're talking about. But I know that this year they're doing. Um, uh, Mary Wives of Windsor, right? I believe that was last year, actually. Okay, that was last year. Well, yeah, anyway, we, <laughs> we literally don't we don't know anything. Um, but my point still stands in the sense that specifically at the public theater and their Shakespeare in the Park productions, there has been a sort of conscious decision I seen with our last few productions to like really make Shakespeare black, right? You got it. Much ado. It was much ado about nothing. Yes, much ado about nothing. The one with Daniel Brooks in it. Um, but there is this sort of like way that the public has been a part of trying to sort of infuse sort of a, a, a blackness and perhaps maybe sort of moderate modern understandings, iterations, performances of blackness within Shakespeare productions. So it's interesting to sort of see a play that is like not just like you know Shakespeare script, but we're gonna make it black, right? Um, and there is a note from the playwright that is included in the playbill, which says it's called the is and ain'ts quote, this ain't Shakespeare. Don't get me wrong. 
I love Shakespeare. This just ain't him. This ain't a tragedy. While I appreciate and weep through tragedies on a daily basis, both imagined and real, this play is not that. Having said that, here is what I hope to offer and create with you. This is a play about families stuck in a few cycles that their youngest members discover they can break. In real time, we see family cycles dissolve to make room for something else to grow. This play is offering tenderness next to softness as a practice of living. This play is celebrating blackness that is traditional and weird and lonely and happy and grieving and honest and frightened and brave and sexy and churchified and liberated and poetic. And I'll just leave it there. There's a little bit more there. But I think the way that he formulates how he himself is relating to Shakespeare and creating a a conscious decision, even though he knows, right, like, Hamlet plays a part in like what we see on stage. There's there's moments that we'll talk about where there's like direct addresses. I, I really love his articulation of how this the core of this play is about blackness and black families, right? Um, and this sort of like turning the tragedy of a Hamlet on its head, which we can also talk about with the ending of the show. Yeah, and I I also wanted to point out to me what brought what immediately came to mind in reading this this particular note is the use of is and ain't and the kind of black queer genealogy that has. So if you know folks are familiar with Black Is Black Ain't by Marlon Riggs, right, and that thinking about blackness and gender and queerness and the the nuances and complexities of intraracial community within that, I think that. You know, James Iams is riffing off of that in a in a really particularly interesting way, right? To think about this is an ain't Shakespeare, like this is an ain't blackness, this is an ain't black queerness, you know. And so it, um, so that really stuck out to me, um, in reading that note. Yeah, definitely, definitely so. So let's talk a bit more about Juicy, who is our main character. One love the name of Juicy. Uh, a, a character name. Love it. <laughs> Do y'all remember what is it? The PJs. The PJs. <laughs> the projects. Yeah, uh, I remember the PJs. Uh, juicy. Yes, yeah. Your name Juicy. Yes. Hey, Ju- Mr. Super. Yes. Yeah. Such, such, such a great, such a great name. Uh, so Juicy is the main character, the Hamlet of, you know, the play, so, so to speak, and and he's approached by his father's ghost, um, who's basically mm-hmm. like we from the hood, <laughs> you know, we, we come from yeah. hard men, right? Like we, all mm-hmm. the men that all the men in our family have killed someone. Um, and your mm-hmm. uncle killed me who interesting enough, uh, is double cast it. Right. And I, and I believe that's a convention mm-hmm. of the script itself that the father and the uncle are played by the same, uh, same actor. Uh, and spins throughout the play is juicy himself trying to really fight with like, do I enact this revenge? Right. Can I kill my uncle? Um, who was quite harsh to him and mean to him throughout the entire play. Um, specifically Mm -hmm. I, I love those moments where juicy directly addresses us, you know, using this sort of convention Mm -hmm. of Shakespeare direct address to the audience where he sort of like slips into actual Shakespeare lines from Hamlet and the way that yeah, this particular yeah. actor approached it was very, um, 
uh, comical and very like, okay, now I'm doing the Shakespeare thing for the audience in a way that the mm-hmm. other dialogue was more naturalized within, within the within the play that I thought was a really interesting dynamic to sort of think about like, oh, this is the moment we're all supposed to know that this is a Shakespeare line. And every time the mm-hmm. actor was so good at delivering that line that it got a laugh every moment and even some claps sometimes because people are like, ah, I see how you weave that in so nicely into this particular moment. Yeah, and I I also, you know, the um our actor who played Juicy who is uh, was portrayed by uh, Marcel Spierks. Um one fin- fantastic performances from everybody. I just want to point that out like right here. But I think in particular with Juicy's um character, the like you said, the the weaving in and out of the narrative and in, in and out of emotional moments to comedic moments to um to moments of joy and pain. I mean, this actor, this is a very athletic role in terms of like emotional athleticism. <laughs> like you have to go so high and so low so quickly mm-hmm. and this actor was so skilled at being able to deliver everything with a plume, right? Like the jokes landed, but also the, you know, poignant moments really landed. Um, And so I was just riveted the entire time. And I also think that I was really in terms of the, the double casting of the, of Rev and Pap, so Rev um, being the, the uncle and then Pap being uh, Juicy's father um who was played by billy eugene jones one billy eugene jones amazing i mean he played both of those roles amazingly and i loved what i also loved too is that they weren't so different like you know what i mean like the character i mean they were different I i felt like i was watching two different people because that's how good he was but like what I loved is a convention of that they weren't that different. I think that's something that happens particularly, and I'm not a Shakespearean scholar, so Shakespeare girls, I really am not trying to tussle. But within Hamlet, there's an idolization that comes with Hamlet's um, memory of his father, right? And and the kind of resentment that breeds with his uncle. And here, because we actually get to see head on Juicy's father. They have a very complicated relationship, right? They have a very complex relationship. And, you know, his father is trying to make him into somebody that he doesn't want to necessarily be, right? He, you know, he thinks he's going to kill the uncle, right? Like, he thinks he's going to do all these things. Um, like you said, the men in the family, they that's what they do. And I think it was such a, a poignant exploration of masculinity and into generational um like patriarchy right being pushed onto people and like literally seeing the journey of juicy pushing back against that i think was really um was really quite lovely i mean you don't really get to see the journey of that right um and i thought it was really really beautiful to watch yeah, and I think the double casting lends itself to that, specifically that role, right? Which is the only role that's 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 um double casted is it really leans into this sort of like identifying family trauma, right? Like these cycles, right? Like by having it be portrayed by the same actors, there's a way that it resonates even more, right? Like and like in your how you say that they're very similar is actually 
I think, right on the money and a deliberate convention by both Imes and uh, Ali in, in his direction to make sure that we don't see this family trauma uh, in this cycle as individualized, right? So it's not just his dad who's terrible to him, but it's also his uncle, right? Specifically the men in his life, right? And we can talk about his mother, Tidra, um, who is a whole nother, you know, level <laughs> of mess. But there's also these moments that I love uh, when uh, she, at one moment she comes out in the play, in the script, and she says, Juicy, what'd you tell them? They they already judging mm. me. They already think they know they have me figured out, right? So like it's not just mm. Juicy who direct addresses the the audience, but there's these moments, um, and there's not a lot of them where the other characters sort of break that fourth wall and they're directly directly addressing us and kind of putting some doubt in the audience's mind about like Juicy's perspective or at least trying to muddy it up a bit. That I thought was really effective and interesting, right? And this like idea of like secrecy specifically sometimes that can happen. In uh, all families, but specifically from my own sort of experience, sort of black families of like, we need to keep our mess, our mess in, in our circles and our house. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, how does that actually foster healing, right? How does that break cycles if, you know, um, this level of secrecy is is maintained and kept that I thought was also really effectively, effectively done? Yeah, I, I agree uh, specifically about Tidra. Um and, you know, if we see the production, you know, she is this, like, glamorous woman and very sexy, right? I mean, the costuming was so beautifully done by Dominique Von Hill, and her her outfits are, like, highlighting all her curves. You know, she's, like, this, um, when you meet her, at least, you think that she's just this, like, you know probably young mother who's still trying to hang on to that sense of youth and um and we get so much more about that so when we're talking about intergenerational trauma i think one of the more like beautiful moments was to see how much Tidra really loved juicy and that was just such a an amazing thing to see i mean like She's a she is a, an African American mother in the South, so um, I thought James Iams was really good about portraying that sense of like, okay, that what you said was wrong, but you got the spirit, you know, <laughs> like when she's like, so you gay or something, you know, or, or whatever it is she said, and but there was a, a true acceptance of Juicy and an acceptance of who he is. And throughout the play, she is there for him in really like tangible ways. Right. Um, you can, and he also doesn't want to leave her because he knows that his uncle is a piece of garbage. So, so they had a, I think really had a, a tender relationship that wasn't always like, Oh, let me give you a hug and tell you how much I love you. But it was more like, okay, who wouldn't want my baby juicy? You know, who wouldn't right? Like, I, I don't know. I, she was very, um, she had so much more going for her that I think that you would expect initially upon meeting her character. And I thought that the direction, the the portrayal by Nikki Crawford in that role and the um and the scripting of that character really lent itself to some um some more emotional complexity than you would have, have expected upon um her entrance into the, the story. 
I, I absolutely agree with that. And I, and I, and I agree in that. I love, I love that, that character, like you said, it's so clear that she loves her son. Right. And she will protect him and as best as she can, right. Being, um, a black woman who has just been uh, widowed, but now remarried to someone else in the family, right? So she's also sort of navigating what does it mean to be under the system of patriarchy, right? Um, in a very mm-hmm. uh, abusive, sometimes hostile patriarchy and trying to sort of navigate that space, um, I think Imes really captures that really, really well. So Tidra, a character mm-hmm. that I was like, oh, she gonna get on my nerves. I sympathized. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there again, there were moments where I was like, mm, shouldn't have said that but at the end of the day it was always about sort of the love and the care that she had for for her her son her son um which i really appreciated uh so let's jump in to talking about black queerness which is such a big big part of this play and this production how do we sort of or how do you jordan see sort of blackness queer black queerness showing up within this within this play yeah, I think that, um, like you said, it is, it's all about that, right? <laughs> um, and I I see Black Queerness showing up in a very, in two very interesting ways. And um, I think, like, let's talk about Juicy and then we'll sort of get into other other characters. Um, with Juicy, I, I like that he was this kind of brooding, brooding person. <laughs> I was like, I relate to this cynical, skeptical, pessimistic character so much. Um, And I think, like, you know, his wit, right, his sharpness, um, how everyone was kind of discomfited by his presence. um, But also, you know, can appreciate that he's, like, super smart um, was really, really really amazing um the he was antagonized a lot through the play right for his sexuality specifically from the men and it's interesting because though we get the like though we understand that he's queer we don't necessarily like i don't know how to explain it like we never get this sense of like oh he is specifically gay or he's specifically this right it's like this exploration of what everyone is putting on to him versus like what we actually see from him when he's able to express himself in those moments. Um, in particular with, uh, uh, like, uh, Larry. Right. Um, and I say that not to sort of discount that he is queer. He's a queer character. I'm not saying that he's not, it's just interesting to me because we get so much chatter, right. Before we even see him, express any kind of romantic interest in anyone in the play of you know his uncle speculating things his dad saying things right his mother saying things and until we actually see juicy himself express himself we are we're just left kind of confronting other people's um what they're pushing on to him and what they expect a black queer person to be and and express right i don't know yeah, definitely, definitely so. And I think that we, he's juicy is comfortable in his sexuality, right? Like, I don't think there's any moment where he's like, oh, I'm not right. Larry is still working some things out. 
but Juicy specifically, I think is is there's a level of comfort in who he is and and uh, mm-hmm. knowing what he's about, right? Like he knows who he is at its core. It's everyone else that's trying to sort of rip him apart from who he wants to be and who he actually is throughout the play. I'll also say with this sort of on the note of queerness that we see this this sort of generational divide within the characters, right? So we have Tidra, we have uh, Revan Pap, and we have uh, Rabi. Rabi? I don't remember how they pronounce the char- that character's name um, mm. in, the, in the play. It's Rabi. Rabi, uh, where, you know, they're very, they're not necessarily open to sort of queerness in like, oh yeah, you're <laughs> queer, good. We, you're, you're good with us. In the way that uh, uh, Tio opal larry right it's 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 more of a fact of life right like we see Mm -hmm. a sort of generational divide they don't beat up well there is a moment in the play (laughs) where something happens to juicy uh for his for uh his queerness right um Mm -hmm. tio which is very this sort of hyper i would say hyper masculine comedic relief of the show um in the clown of the show we meet him when he's talking about uh you know thinking about if he should enter the sexual entertainment <laughs> industry and if he would be mm-hmm. good at it to like the story about a gingerbread later on in, in the um in the play that you know him and juicy have a really uh loving thoughtful relationship um and you mm-hmm. would you wouldn't necessarily think that these two characters wouldn't necessarily have a bond in that way. Um, but I think Imes really erupts this notion of like generational um understandings, acceptance of queerness, right? Where queerness for for the younger folks in this actual play is a fact of life. <laughs> it's just who Juicy mm-hmm. is and, and other characters in the play where mm-hmm. The older generation is is a bit more sort of skeptical um, because they're uh, tied to sort of these systems such as, like you said, patriarchy, uh, heterosexual family, right, in a way that really mm-hmm. impacts how they treat the other people, specifically the other younger members of the family. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. And the, you know, I think that... Can we, let's let's talk about Larry a little bit. <laughs> um, so we get Larry who um, he enters and he is um, he is in the military, so he's in uniform for a majority of the play. And um, when he walks in, he's like, "I will," you know. He sees Juicy, and Juicy's like, "What's up?" And he's like, "What's up?" And you know, he's like, "Oh, why are you wearing your uniform?" And Larry's like, "I thought." You would think I look cool in it or something like that. And automatically we're like, ah, okay, automatically, okay, automatically okay. we're like gay. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. It takes one to know. Um, okay. So, um, so, <laughs> so then, so then, you know, they don't get a ton of interaction until, you know, it's them left on stage. And all of a sudden we get this moment where Larry just breaks down all of his walls, right? Like he is like, I I wanna be I wanna be soft. I want to kiss you. I wanna lay my head in your lap, you know, all of these different things. And it's like, oh my hold now, hold on. But also it is a really beautiful moment because 
you see the weight that Larry has had to experience. So Larry, in the play, his mother is um, this very, like, <laughs> churchy. Well, I mean, she walks in and sun literally Sunday's bed, like a hat, the full suit. I'm like, I know this woman. This woman, that's my aunt. Um, and, and his sister is Opal, who is, we'll get to Opal in a minute. And Larry is very much like, you know, the stoic quiet very much um traditional masculinity if if you can even call it that um performing a sense of traditional masculinity or an acceptable form of masculinity which like through the military and and you know non-emotional and then we get this like moment where it's between him and juicy and like it was just so beautiful it made me all tingly inside because i've also, I love romantic comedy, so I'm just like, yes, and now kiss. Um, but I think that in particular, that moment had me thinking about like the complex way that he we see him deal with queerness, um, which kind of leads into that later moment that happens. Um, I don't know if you had more you wanted to, to add about. Yeah, I, I think this idea of sort of softness, right? Like the the we only get that that angle or that perspective of who Larry is because Juicy invites that sort of softness out of him right where he feels mm -hmm. like he can be vulnerable in that way and that's largely in part because i think Juicy is so um sure of who he is right even as people mm -hmm. like i said continuously try to sort of like beat it out of him right um in a way that sort of larry has sort of leaned into like well you know i don't want to be antagonizing the way that juicy is so i'm going to sort of perform like you said this this sort of traditional masculinity in order for sort of a safety net right so like when he sees juicy right like he 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 finds a soft place to land right um mm -hmm. and you know that landing is not necessarily smooth right like i, I don't want to sort of um Spoil. It was giving training pilot. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to spoil the climax <laughs> of the play. Um, but um there there is there is a moment where we sort of sort of see all that frustration uh come out. Um but specifically also the there is a moment at the end of the play, the sort of final moment that during the the right before the curtain call that bleeds into the curtain call, um where we actually see sort of this queerness explode. And I think ex an explosion mm -hmm. is, is the right way to describe it, where it sort of turns into the, sort of this dance number. Um, we're invited mm -hmm. to dance with the with the, the, the cast. Um, and, and did. Sort of, and did, and did. Um, and these sort of <laughs> subtle hints of like everyone on stage, even, you know, the older generation participating and like having like subtle changes into their costume to be more sort of glamorous or or, or uh, lean into sort of a queer aesthetic is, is really punctured um in a way that i think really is is, is quite brilliant but quite interesting mm -hmm. when we think about this conversation around sort of queerness and specifically blackness and like you know what conversations are happening intro community uh, communally around sort of queerness. Yeah, and I, what I love too is that Juicy's perspective is really challenged throughout the play, right? And so I love that James Iams doesn't just you know, oh, he's the main character, he can do no wrong. Um, 
everything that he knows is correct. <laughs> his his perspective is the most correct perspective. And I think in Juicy's confrontations with Tidra, in his confrontations with Larry, in his confrontations with Opal, which we'll get to, right? I think that Juicy gets his perspective challenged. And us as the viewers also get challenged alongside with alongside him and i thought it was just so refreshing because oftentimes when you have this main character like they can be very pollyanna and everything that you know everything that they do is great but it was nice to see like no he's can be wrong and even his perspectives on queerness can be wrong right and i guess we won't spoil it but you know i think that his in that moment with Larry, when we really see him get challenged in a real tangible way, um, I, I think it adds a, a new layer to how we expect um, black queer people to perform and, and understand their sexuality. Um, even like you said, intracommunally, I even think like it's intracommunal within queer, like black queer community too, right? Yeah, definitely so. So let's shift to, uh, another queer character uh, in the play, Opal, and specifically, you know, we often have a lot of conversations around like, well, you know, where are the black queer femme and or women, and, and women uh, characters in black theater, right? Um, where is that often explored? And, you know, at the end of the episode, we'll give you some sort of recommendations about that. But we have a lot of a conversation about like, is sometimes this conversation around black queerness really masculinized, right? Like, mm -hmm. is it, is it, is it so far leaning um, that we're actually missing a, a, a solid piece of like black queer women and femmes, a part of this conversation. Mm -hmm. So Opal is queer, right? She like blurts it out <laughs> in this moment of the play. Um, and I like girls. <laughs> I like girls, right? She's, she's in this dress that she's uncomfortable and I was like, ooh, flashbacks. You know, uncomfortable in, doesn't want to be wearing, but her mama made her wear it. She, but she still got her Chuck Taylors on her feet, right? Uh, she's very uncomfortable. And a hoodie. In, yeah, in her hoodie over it, right? Not matching, but whatever. She gonna have the hoodie and the Chucks on with this dress. Um, so I was curious, you know, we, we had some sort of offline conversations around Opal's character and her depiction and, you know, how she's relating to sort of this larger conversation about queerness. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like you said, you know, we, we are taking this kind of black feminist perspective to black queer experience. Right. And, and thinking about how have um, black lesbians, black bisexual women, black queer women, femme folks, um, how black trans women, like how have they been um, or not been, right, represented within black theater spaces. And I think that this play, you know, to its credit, right, does think about this in a sort of intersectional perspective with the inclusion of Opal, which is supposed to be a, a kind of riffing on Ophelia from Hamlet. And um, Opal is definitely a way more nuanced and complex character than Ophelia. <laughs> For those who are familiar with Hamlet, like, absolutely, yes. Um, but I think where I kind of bring in my own um, um, critique of of Opal's character is in the um, in the way she's way her queerness is represented. I think that I don't know. I guess it was kind of an alienating or, or distancing experience watching this beautifully nuanced and complex relationship and um, exploration play out with Juicy's character and with um, 
and with Larry, right? And seeing how both of them uh, wrestle and are firm and are confident, but are not like within their queerness. And then Opal's just kind of like, I like girls. And that's like the extent that we understand about her queerness. And even, you know, like you were talking about this discomfort in her dress and maybe trying to, you know, mask it up with some sneakers and a hoodie. Um, maybe this is just me, but not once did I ever feel like this person that I was watching was uncomfortable in that dress. <laughs> um, and I think that, you know, it makes me wonder about how we understand how women, um, people who are not men um, literally perform within like how their bodies are within like um, their gender presentations. Right. And this is not to say I didn't enjoy the performances. I thought it was great. And I was like riveted the entire time. Um, I just wonder about like, I'm not sure that I believed necessarily that I was um, watching someone who was uncomfortable in that space um and that like also you know opal had this weird kind of murder obsession i don't know like she was a she definitely like representation for the all black girls okay i get that but also like i don't know it, it kind of in some ways it felt um kind of uh stereotypical to be like oh you're a queer woman so like you're interested in like things that are traditionally masked like guns I don't know I don't know I don't know Leticia how do you, how do you feel yeah I guess I I I appreciated the Opal's presence right as sort of a black queer person or black queer woman specifically within within you know the family right that that she's there um that she has her own sort of uh, way of being in the world and like that it's but but I, I feel similarly in that I wish there was a bit more of her sort of own interrogation even if like she's very comfortable with being queer perhaps some more uh, mm -hmm. complexity around sort of like how she presents right or, or shows up that queerness like I, I'm assuming because of her sort of comments about the dresses and other people's comments about her wearing a dress that she is someone who perhaps wears masculine clothes and or gender non-conforming clothes, right? Like, um, um, perhaps, perhaps that's, that's my assumption. And, and I don't know if that's, that's the intention necessarily, but I, but I was sort of interested in like maybe that being a bigger part of sort of understanding her characters and complexity. And, you know, we, we've had conversation as someone who, um, you know, dresses masculine in my appearance and my, in my gender performance, right. Around the space of, you know, where if queer women who, who dress masculine, right, are still women, right? Like, where do they fit within sort of these larger conversations around feminists, fem feminists about around um, uh, womanhood, right? Um, because they dress a certain way, are they sort of distanced from that? And I would have loved to perhaps see that sort of conversation with within the play a bit more. Uh, and perhaps this is like also me just putting on sort of my own working through things or not even necessarily working through things but just think mm -hmm. something I've thought about for for a bit uh of thinking about like you know 
uh, masculine of center, you know, queer women, right? Um, is there a softness that they're allowed to have, I guess, mm. in the same way that Larry finds a softness with Juicy? When was mm. Opal in this play able to sort of find a softness, right? She had to be tough the entire entire production. And again, like mm. I said, I, I appreciate that she's even there because a lot of times she wouldn't even... <laughs> be included in the play but that that was something i was i was sort of curious about um and interested in 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 the play exploring a bit more yeah she's on 10 the entire time like quite frankly right like when we meet her (laughs) she is uh she's on 10 the entire time i mean she has a fascination with knives you know she's really um she's very funny this actress was extremely funny comedic timing on point loved it um but i agree with you about the softness i think that that's something that um you know the conversations around butchness or studness or (laughs) masculinity within um you know non-cis men women um femmes right present is that like there is this assumed hardness right that oh because you are presenting in a masculine way that there's a a way that you're also trying to be tough right um and and so i i i too would want to see a little bit more exploration in a character like opal um around when is she afforded softness and not this kind of extreme rebellion to the way that people try to feminize her right um in that she's like i could I could go to the military and shoot people, <laughs> she says, right? But more so that I want I want acceptance. Like, I want love from my mother. I want my mother to see me as who I am, not in a dress, in whatever I want to wear, but that I'm also a person. And I'm. it's not just this kind of, like, even at the end when you said, when we talked, you talked about the curtain call, right, that transformed into this dance party. And even within that dance party, People change costumes, right? But the character of Opal still stays in the dress. Like, she still is in her dress at the at that moment. And I wondered if that could have been an opportunity to, um, to change her appearance even more, right? I mean, Larry gets to change his ex- appearance. All the other characters change their appearance. But, like... We've seen her be uncomfortable and express discomfort and other people express discomfort with her discomfort (laughs) the entire time and she never gets a reprieve. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because I think about when you said that, I was like, oh yeah, when I was like wearing dresses um, or forced to wear dresses, or not even necessarily forced, my family really enforced me like that, but like I was like, I have to do this performance thing. I was like, I would put up, I would put basketball shorts quick up under any dress I was wearing <laughs> like you know what if she would have pulled out like okay basketball shorts tucked in the dress in the basketball shorts right like I, I think you're right in in uh identifying that right as like maybe there was a way that that the production could have sort of signaled to sort of like her also being sort of um being able to perform her gender and wear what she wants in mm-hmm. that moment yeah before we get out of here Let's talk about the ending of the actual show. So we know that Hamlet is a tragedy. I'm says this is not a tragedy. This is in fact a comedy, right? 
And mm-hmm. I think we see this inversion of a tragedy to a comedy at the end where, spoil alert, the uncle dies at the cookout. He chokes on some sort of food and he won't let Ju- <laughs> Juicy save him or uh, perform the Heimlich. So he just ends up dying because, you know, homophobia. Um, he ends up sort of doing this whole sort of like exaggerated death <laughs> onto the table, the cookout table. And then at one point, uh, you know, uh, Juicy goes into this monologue and he's like, we don't have to do this, y'all. And like, okay. And then literally the cast starts cleaning up the set, like picking up all the food off the ground, uh, you know. And then they tell um, the actor who plays, uh, uh, sorry, Rev, Billy Jean Jones, get up, help us. So he's like, oh, okay. Oh, so he's like, she was like, and they're like, you you know, you're being extra, right? So that's another moment where the the fourth wall is broken. But it, it becomes really this sort of funny moment that is supposed to be like very tragic, right? Like they're all supposed to, die in hamlet essentially right like everyone dies uh that's the tragedy of it all um but there is a way that Imes really flips that on its head right and i think it has a specifically potent uh it's really potent for black folks to sort of deny that sort of death drive to deny the sort of the the ending of hamlet to be like oh yeah we're all gonna die or you know we're all gonna have this sort of tragic ending uh to be like no, we're just actually not going to play the game anymore. We're not going to sort of like lean into these narratives, right? We're actually going to create a new ending, a very comedic, funny ending, but something different that I really, I really, really, really loved that moment. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, we were having this really intense conversation over the last few years about how black people are represented within the theater, right? Um, it's either all tragedy or it's totally toothless, right? And I think that Fat Ham does that really great balance of thinking about the pain, but also the, the party, right? Um, and I don't know, I... I I agree with you that the ending it, with its subversion of Juicy just being like, you know what? Actually, we don't need to make this a tragedy. Like, let's just go forth and be merry. And all the problems are not solved, right? It's not like this utopic ending. The uncle is probably still a terrible person. Um, you know, the mom is still married to this terrible person. Um, or like it even opens up the possibility of something else. I just think that the ending not being so clear cut um, and then just, you know, devolving into this party, I think it opens up the the potential for for imagination in a way that, you know, it's not neatly tied up as to all the fates of the characters. We don't know that they all die or we don't know that they all live. It's just like there's there's a potential for all of it to happen. We we don't know. Maybe Juicy does still <laughs> go after you know Rev after the play ends, or maybe um, Opal does join the mil- military, or maybe Larry and Juicy do or don't get together. We really don't know. But what we do know is that for that moment, they are subverting the possibility of us being like um, spectators to like that spectacle or whatever that might be. And I, I think it was a really great and smart theatrical way of, of doing that moment. No, definitely. 
you know, overall really loved this production um, and this play. I'm actually really excited for when it gets published so I can actually really dive into sort of the details and the nitty grittiness of the script um, and teach it and definitely teach it. Um, I'm excited to explore more of Imes's work and uh, just really see what else he has cooking. I know that he has a world premiere next year at the public theater for, for um, a new show. So I'm excited to see that. Um, hopefully fingers crossed I can get up there um, and just continue to sort of support his work. Uh, so Jordan, let's go on to our reading list. What do we got for the good folks? Um, before we get into like the formal sort of text, I also wanted to point you all because we are dramaturgs, we have to like point out our dramaturgy. Um, the National Black Theater uh, curated a dramaturgical exhibit for Fat Ham specifically, um, and it's called Belonging, Reimagining the Family Tree, and this includes photo essays of Black queer, um, Black queer life, statistics around queer life in the South, um, Black queerness, so much wonderful information. I highly, highly recommend you all checking out um, that dramaturgical exhibit, and we'll, we'll make sure to link that in our transcript for you all to explore. It's amazing um, teaching tool and also gives you a lot more context for some of the things that happen within the play. So I wanted to point that out. Now, without further ado, let's get into our reading list. Um, so again, we want to highlight um, James Imes' other work, um, specifically plays like Moon Men Walk, Kill Move Paradise, and The Most Spectacularly Lamentable Trial of Miss Martha Washington. Please check out his other work and continue to cite and teach and program his plays um, all across the country. Um, and then we have some other playwrights that we wanted to point you all towards. Um, we like to to highlight the work of Robert O'Hara, specifically his play Booty Candy, um, which I also saw a really great production of that recently. Um, and we and also Donny Love's work, specifically his play Sugar in My Wounds. So check out those. And for those of you who are like, where are the women? Where are the non-cis men? We got you. Um, we wanted to highlight plays by Christina Anderson, um, specifically her play How to Cratch Creation, and also by Aziza Barnes and their play Blacks. Um, please check out those plays. Please read, teach, and cite them. Um, and then as for some critical material to go alongside um, your contextualization of what we talked about in this episode, as well as any further work on Fat Ham, we have Butch Queens Up and Pumps, Gender Performance and Ballroom Culture in Detroit by Marlon Bailey, um, Queer Studies or Almost Everything I Learned About Queer Studies I Learned From My Grandmother by E. Patrick Johnson, and then finally, one of my personal favorite anthologies, um, Black Queer Studies, A Critical Reader, which is edited by E. Patrick Johnson and May G. Henderson, and also features an, an article by our mentor, Phaedra Chattard Carpenter, um, on interaction holding history called um, Querying History. Um, please check out that reader and, um, and let us know what you think about all of these um, recommendations. 
great. Check them out. Like Jordan said, let us know what you think. Um, if you have any other recommendations, drop us a line. Post it on Twitter where we retweet you. Uh, but this has been another fantastic conversation with you, Jordan. So glad that we got mm. to see the play together and that we were able to sort of talk about it. Um, I, I really enjoyed it. Really enjoyed seeing it and really enjoyed this production. <laughs> This has been another episode of Daughters of Lorraine. We're your hosts, Leticia Ridley. And Jordan Ely. On our next episode, we discuss Black feminism in theater and performance. You definitely won't want to miss this. In the meantime, if you're looking to connect with us, please follow us on Twitter at D-O-Lorraine-Pod, P-O-D. You can also email us at daughtersoflorraine at gmail.com for further contact. The Daughters of Lorraine podcast is produced as a contribution to HowlRound Theater Commons. You can find more episodes of this series and other HowlRound podcasts in our feed on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you find podcasts. Be sure to search HowlRound Theater Commons podcast and subscribe to receive new episodes. If you loved this podcast, post a rating and write a review on those platforms. This helps other people find us. You can also find a transcript for this episode, along with a lot of other progressive and disruptive content on HowlRound.com. Have an idea for an exciting podcast, essay, or TV event the theater community needs to hear? Visit HowlRound.com and submit your ideas to the comments. Wow. Wow.